Welcome to the Environmental Transformation Podcast, where we talk with industry leaders who are making an impact in their businesses. Each leader is solving complex challenges and providing solutions within their respective areas of expertise. Our host is Sean Grady. He is passionate about helping clients transform their businesses and solving their environmental challenges. And here's our host, Sean Grady. Welcome to the Environmental Transformation Podcast. Our podcast will bring you interviews with leaders in the environmental industry with the goal of providing environmental, sustainability, and safety professionals, as well as business leaders with information about the industry trends, regulatory changes, digital and software technologies, and service providers that are transforming the industry. Hello, everyone. Today's guest is Dr. Ryan Thomas. Dr. Thomas received his Bachelor of Science degree in Chemistry from the University of Michigan and his PhD from Wayne State University. He also did postdoctoral research at the State University of New York in Buffalo. Dr. Thomas is a member of the Innovative Technology Group, ITG, at GHD, located in Niagara Falls, New York. He is the leader of GHD's North American Emerging Contaminants Workgroup. And this involves leading the overall focus of the group and contributing to the technical knowledge around PFAS site characterization, remediation technologies, and sampling protocols. Within ITG, Ryan is also leading research and development studies around emergent contaminant treatment, removal, and destruction technologies for PFAS and 1,4-dioxane. Recently, Ryan and his team of scientists published an article in the Wiley Research Journal about PFOS treatment technologies. I thought it'd be a great opportunity to catch up with Ryan and have him discuss the article and other projects he's working on. Welcome to the podcast, Ryan. Uh, welcome to the show again, and, and we're excited to have you on. And I did a bit of a, an intro for you. Uh, for the listeners earlier, kind of giving a background about yourself. But um, why don't you give us a little bit, uh, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey that led you to GHD. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was uh, born and raised in uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, where I spent the uh, first 15 years of my life. Uh, From there, I, I moved to Metro Detroit in Michigan, where I completed all of my formal education. So, so that means finished high school, went on to obtain my bachelor's of science majoring in chemistry yeah. uh, from university of Michigan, and then stuck with chemistry a bit more and went to uh, Wayne state university where I obtained my PhD in analytical chemistry. And uh, somewhere in these 15 years that I spent in Metro Detroit, in addition to the education, I fell in love with my high school sweetheart, got married and uh, had our son. Nice. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, after the PhD, I was torn between sticking with academia and uh, going the professorship route or directly to industry. Right. So I, uh, I worked as a postdoctoral associate in the chemistry department at the State University of New York at, at Buffalo and focused on some solid state spectroscopy for renewable energy and running calculations to understand excited state um, dynamics. I then found an interesting job posting that was uh, looking for someone with a PhD with laboratory experience to serve as an environmental scientists and in the innovative technology group at GHD. So I applied and uh, here we are. Oh, wow, man. So, so you really enjoyed all those organic and PCAM class and all that stuff, huh? Back in the Absolutely. Day. Absolutely. I, I love my, my graduate school 
uh, class where it was uh, quantum mechanics. That was fantastic. I loved it. So you spent, uh, you know, some time there um, getting your, your, your doctor doctorates and, and, and doing some research and landed at GHD. Uh, and now you've been with GHD for how long? It will be five years this September. So for the listeners who may not know, what does the ITG do? Yeah, excellent question. Uh, well, Innovative Technology Group, or ITG, it's a, it's a dedicated team that focuses on really the identification, uh, development, evaluation, and, and application of innovative approaches for site remediation. The, okay. the main goal for us is to reduce overall site remediation costs through the implementation of these innovative technologies. Our um, environmental testing and treatability study facility is located in Niagara Falls, New York, and it includes laboratories for general, analytical, and chemical treatment testing with dedicated areas for working with toxic and uh, hazardous materials. Uh, the lab is operated as a research laboratory since the early 2000s. I was, I was still in high school in Michigan when the lab actually started up. So, Oh, yeah. <laughs> And uh, for the last four or five years, we've been, you know, focusing on emerging contaminants, including 1,4-dioxane and per and polyfluoroalkyl substances, also known as PFAS. And that's that's really the area I've spent most of my time uh, within ITG. That, you know, kind of leads me to my next question is, um, you know, so what types of services is GHD offering on the PFAS front? You know, like what types of projects have you been doing? Uh, what types of media are you looking at? I mean, you know, what, what's, what's, what's that GHD offering? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, first, we, we believe that the best forward path for a PFAS is to root our decisions around the, the science and facts. And uh, members within the Emerging Contaminants Group have been working you know, globally to study PFAS while partnering with industrial experts and academia to clearly define the risk management strategies and science-based remediation approaches. So in terms of our uh, services, we have advisory services dedicated to help our clients really navigate the regulatory and technical uncertainties associated um, with PFAS. We, we help our clients prioritize resources while uh, managing risks from any uh, legacy impacts. And, you know, truly, our, our technical team advise whether investigations are necessary. We advocate on behalf of our clients if investigations is unwarranted and really develop focused strategies when maybe these investigations are deemed necessary. Some of the uh, specific services include phase one and phase two contaminated site investigations, risk assessment, um, remediation action plans, uh, feasibility studies, cost estimates, and you know, management strategies, in addition to that research and development component that we uh, perform in the Innovative Technology Group. Ah, okay. So now that's great. I mean, so for some of the listeners uh, that are on, they're, you know, joining, I mean, like, you know, GHD is a global company. And uh, so I'm kind of interested to know, like, what's the network of expertise throughout our global enterprise that you might be able to share with us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, you know, Australia is where we have uh, a big, uh, really stake in the, in the ground there on PFAS, PFAS expertise. Um, they have been involved in a lot of defense site work there in terms of some of these site characterizations and getting the remediation started. 
Uh, Australia has been ahead of uh, United States about three to five years in terms of just trying to understanding the freight and transport and just some of the PFAS impacts. So having that you know, direct knowledge transfer from Australia to North America gives us really an advantage in terms of how we approach our, pro our projects here from more of a proactive risk, uh, risk management-based approach. Um, in uh, North America, we've worked on uh, many industrial sites uh, that would have been either chrome platers or you know, have uh, aqueous film-forming foam impacts that would have PFAS there. Uh, in terms of media, the, the first, you know, projects there are focused on water, groundwater, surface water, things that uh, would, would be in the aqueous phase. But now what we are seeing is that more projects are, you know, coming in for, for soil and sediment um, of remediation. So I think as we evolve a bit more here, we'll see that uh, we'll move away from drinking water and more towards even soils and uh, maybe even air emissions. I see. Okay. So PFAS is an emergent, you know, chemical that's, you know, getting a lot of attention, you know, throughout the country and worldwide, to be honest with you. But, you know, within the U.S. and, and maybe in Canada as well, you know, what are the regulatory drivers, if any, that are really pushing the industry to really look at, you know, these types of remediation technologies or treatment technologies? You know, can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. And it's really the, the human health impacts and exposure routes. Um, there was a, a study uh, using uh, the unregulated control monitoring rule three or UCMR three data to really assess drinking water impacts around some of the watersheds that would have been around AFFF, uh, aqueous film forming foam, foams impacts and um, other PFAS uh, sites. And what that study found was that more than 6 million uh, U.S. residents had impacts um, from PFAS. And that's really where, you know, the EPA started to uh, develop their final health advisory level, which was 70 nanograms per liter or 70 parts uh, per trillion. So that's been one of the, the main drivers there. And what we're seeing is that now the, the states are going for lower um, PFAS levels and including more than just a few uh, PFAS. Uh, and, you know, put that into context a bit, there are over 5,000 PFAS compounds and we can detect for them for about 30 to uh, the low 40. And just trying to understand the, the different variations of PFAS can be a challenge and also understanding their overall human health impacts. So the, 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 the potential uh, human health impacts, uh, impacts, that's kind of the, the big driver here. And it sounds like there's still some learnings to be had there i guess of the truly like what the real impact is or is it been pretty well defined that no these are toxic chemicals that can really affect you know human health in the environment you know and there there are studies ongoing i think that in terms of toxicology what we're seeing is that they're looking to understand the true impacts and and you know what are the the actual human health effect, impacts and i know that the center for disease and control cdc uh, and some other agencies were focused on yeah, those type of evaluations in terms of water uh, that po the population would have been drinking at different concentrations uh, with PFAS and really understand what the, the health of those uh, folks that were drinking that water really is. And that, those studies started up um, late last year, 2019 in September. And I know that um, 
since COVID and the, and the pandemic, some of the data has been delayed, but we do expect to see see some of that data uh, shortly here, hopefully towards the end of the year. But to to your point, um, I think it's still evolving to really get definitive understanding of the true toxicological effects of, of PFAS. So, I mean, okay, so some of our listeners, maybe PFAS is kind of a new term. Maybe it's not. Maybe they're like experts, you know, like yourself. But what are the types of products that PFAS may be in, you know, contained in? Yeah, yeah, uh, sure. Uh, so, you know, PFAS stands for per and polyfluoroalkyl substances. And this PFAS term is really an umbrella acronym for more than uh, 5,000 compounds, including perfluorooctane sulfonate or PFOS and perfluorooctanoate or PFOA, which are really the, the two most studied PFAS of this group of compounds. And, you know, these substances were typically used in aqueous film forming foams, uh, commonly known as AFFF to, uh, you know, extinguish some of the class B fires. Okay. Uh, they've been applied to surfaces to functionalize those surfaces to be nonstick, such as some of the old nonstick cookware we've all used before. Uh, also added to, um, you know, fabrics, maybe even carpet and even furniture for its uh, water and stain resistant properties. Uh, additional industrial use would have been as a fume suppressant and some of the metal plating operations, uh, such as chrome plating. Uh, PFOS was typically used as uh, suppressant for the hexavalent chromium to uh, you know, reduce the occupational exposure to that hexavalent chromium for the workers that were in working with that material. So uh, to your point, they've been used in many applications. And now what we see are these you know, widespread detections of some of these substances in our, in our drinking water supplies. Wow, right, right. So, so it sounds like, you know, um, really looking for technologies to address drinking water exposure, it seems to be more than likely, I, I would imagine is going to be a big opportunity for, for, you know, engineering firms, uh, to assist, uh, you know, local municipalities address these, these potential impacts, right? Yeah, absolutely. And there, there are a lot of vendors who have been, you know, using, different media for drinking water sources uh, for many years. And uh, now you just throw on a different class of contaminants with PFAS and they're trying to evaluate their media to understand efficiencies and maybe even tweak it a bit so that it can be more selective towards removing PFAS from those drinking water. Well, so I think this kind of tees up a, a, a good question because one of the real reasons I wanted to bring you on the show was that you recently published an article uh, in the Wiley uh, Remediation Journal uh, that was entitled Evaluation of PFAS Treatment Technologies, Alkaline Ozonation. And I wanted to learn a little bit about that. Maybe you could explain to our listeners what you guys did, you know, and, and what the outcome of the study was. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we performed a, a bench scale treatability study to evaluate alkaline ozonation towards uh, PFAS treatment at a former industrial site in, uh, in Michigan. Uh, so essentially, we, we took groundwater from the site and subjected it to a, a wide range of uh, experimental conditions, including modifying the pH, uh, modifying ratios of amendments that were used, in addition to evaluating some of the destruction uh, products that would be evolved from the destruction of uh, PFAS during the experiment. And, you know, looking at these different scenarios, we, we do come to a point that we you know, want to make 
uh, definitive decisions in terms of will this technology, you know, have the legs to go the way to actually get at, you know, either treating and or, you know, removing or destroying PFAS um, from, from uh, impacted waters. I see. See, so, so what happened, you know, what was the outcome? Like, did you, did you find out that, you know what, this, this ozonation process works? Yeah, good, good point. And what we saw was that, you know, overall, uh, PFAS concentrations were decreased throughout the experiment at different um, intervals. So you start off at a higher level for um, particular PFAS. And at each point, we would, you know, collect the sample and send that off to uh, national labs to evaluate uh, PFAS after that uh, particular interval. And what we saw is that we were getting anywhere between 75 to 97 percent reductions uh, for specifically uh, PFOS, which is one of the one of the main PFAS that most folks are interested in terms of uh, treatment at this point. Uh, one of the questions that we had was, okay, well, are, you know, are we destroying PFAS or are we just moving it to a different phase? And one way to get after that is to look at some of the destruction um, byproducts, such as sure. uh, fluoride ions that would have been evolved as a result of cleaving a, a carbon fluorine bond or uh, any sulfate or formate or any other uh, inorganic and organic acids that would have uh, would have been involved at each of these steps. Uh, also looking at total organic fluorine and trying to observe any decreases in total organic fluorine resulting from um, PFAS treatment. And, you know, overall, we, the tests indicate that the decreases in these uh, concentrations are really due to a combination of removal and destructive uh, mechanisms that are, in, are a bit more enhanced under certain conditions. So when you get when you finish the, 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 the study, I mean, so the next step would be what? Try to, you know, develop a, a more of a full scale treatment process that you can actually uh, implement to, re, you know, actively, you know, readily reduce PFAS in groundwater. Absolutely. The, the, the next step there would, would be to, you know, take it to more of a, a pilot scale um at a site and, you know, evaluate it with uh, the water that will be going through the system there. Uh, of course, with research, there's always uh, more questions to be answered. And, you know, one of the questions we had was that, okay, you know, we are ozonating at, uh, at different pHs. And the, the question we have is that, are we performing any air stripping? And if we don't see destruction products that are really closing that mass balance of uh, fluorine and, and uh, fluoride ions there, uh, is it possible that we are losing it either to uh, either air stripping uh, via air emission, or is it that they're being um, broken down to uh, smaller PFAS C2 or C3 um, uh, compounds that we are just not even looking for at, the, at this point? So one of the things that we want to do and been in, in talks with some national labs is to, you know, have a closed system where we can have some sort of absorptive media, uh, you know, involved to actually capture any air PFAS that may be being stripped to the air and try to understand, you know, how much um, or what the percentage of that would be in terms of the total PFAS that's being treated. Oh, okay. Oh, I mean, that's, you know, it's very interesting, you know, obviously to, to kind of come up with a technology or a, an approach that does this type of reduction. Um, but I mean, maybe, maybe for the listeners describe some of the challenges of PFOS remediation, you know, you know, such as maybe, you know, the proper sampling methodologies, analytical testing challenges, you know, wh why is it so difficult to, to, to you know, really come up with, 
uh, you know, remediation approaches. I mean, yeah, absolutely. You know, since PFAS, as we, you know, kind of discussed a bit here, is that they find themselves in a multitude of applications and products. And this makes them ubiquitous, meaning that they can be everywhere, meaning that they can be on the sampler who is in the field collecting samples, some of the commonly used sampling equipment or clothing that has that water-resistant coatings are really not appropriate for these sampling events. Uh, the bottles used for collection must be HDPE or high-density polyethylene materials. No, no glass bottles are used due to the potential of uh, these compounds sticking to the glass and resulting in artificially lower sample concentrations. Any water for blanks, such as a field blank or equipment blank, must actually be certified PFAS-free, which is documented through a, a certified lab. At this point, we cannot assume that distilled water or even tap water would be PFAS-free. Um, additionally, field reagent blanks are collected to determine if uh, methanolytes are uh, even present in the uh, field environment in which you are collecting um, the, the samples in. So there, there are PFAS sampling practices that are deemed best available at this point in the literature so that the sample that is collected is actually a representative of the site. And really the point is that we need to be extremely cautious and, and how we plan for these sampling events. And, you know, as more of a disclaimer, the available best practices for PFAS sampling, including the equipment used, often lacks the peer-reviewed research to validate the, uh, the use of certain equipment and products over others. And, but until, you know, more research is available, we, we will continue to be conservative in our approach to sampling. But in, in terms of um, analytical, there's a few methods at this point. Uh, the, the US EPA has two methods that are both uh, available specifically to detect uh, PFAS in drinking water. Uh, there are some ASTM methods that are targeting environmental samples, including soils, sediment and sludge and wastewaters. Typically, the, the national labs will use modified methods that are based on the US EPA's drinking water methods. So the, the point there is that they'll take that US EPA drinking water method and modify it such that it can be used for, say, a groundwater or a soil or even a landfill leachate. But mm -hmm. um, the US EPA has mentioned that their drinking water methods do not allow for the flexibility outside of those that are mentioned. And any modification should, be should not be considered a, uh, a modified method. So essentially, before even remediating for PFAS, the difficult, uh, difficulties here arise with uh, sampling and analyzing the samples. But uh, all of these obstacles can be overcome with just proper planning and discussions prior to uh, going out into the field and collecting. So it sounds like having a really well thought through uh, sampling and analysis plan, you know, written out, you know, procedures and is, is key, right? I mean, you know, if you don't really follow the right protocols to get out in the field, you know, you're going to have skewed results or, or information, you, you know, it's not really valuable, right? Yeah, agreed. You know, we, we, although there are many, you know, general guidelines to follow, it really has to be specific to the site. We, we want to make sure we understand where we're getting, you know, our samples from, uh, especially if it's a tap, how long are we flushing that tap? What's the construction of the material of the spigot there that, you know, we want to make sure that uh, those materials are PFAS free so that it's not um, really contributing to the overall concentrations there. So to your point, absolutely. We want to make sure that we have those things well documented and, and thought through before going out and collecting. So I'm assuming you've been involved with helping, uh, you know, prepare those sampling plans for project teams and, and things like that, I'm assuming, right? Absolutely. Those are our, our standard operating procedures and 
for water and soil sampling. We, we have included that in our field method guidelines so that uh, folks can uh, you know have the general, but then reach out if necessary for more specific questions such as um, you know the appropriate uh, use of materials and what type of uh, clothing and, and sampling um, samplers that they should be using. Sure. No, that's great. That's good. I mean, you know, it, it, we need uh, to have good instruction for staff to do that. And I think that's that's perfect. Um, well, you know, kind of segueing into another aspect of this whole, you know, kind of topic is what are the main methods of actually treating PFAS chemicals? I mean, is there really a silver bullet out there? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so to, to treat PFAS and water, I guess I'll start there is that you know, the main field demonstrated methods are typically passive in nature uh, that involves using adsorption mechanism or ion exchange to physically remove the PFAS from the water. Uh, granular activated carbon or GAC works as more of an adsorption media to remove PFAS, but uh, the issue is that GAC is not selective only for PFAS, and, and this means that if other organic contaminants are present in the water, particularly at higher concentrations than the PFAS, then that GAC will need to be replaced uh, a bit sooner unless uh, yeah. you uh, employ more of a pre-treatment step to try to remove those other uh, adsorbing organics. Uh, Ion exchange it has more of a dual removal mechanism and such that PFAS that are negatively charged can be removed in addition to the hydrophobic end of these compounds that can adsorb to the hydrophobic surface of the resins. Uh, organics can file the resin similar to GAC and ionic contaminants can compete for ion exchange sites. Uh, there are other methods such as nanofiltration and reverse osmosis for some ex situ technologies, but there's a, a volume of reject water that can be significant and still needs to be dealt with. Um, that's for water, but if we want to talk about you know, solid materials such as the spent um, PFAS absorption media, the GAC and the ion exchange, and even the aqueous film-forming foam, at this point, incineration is the, uh, the best demonstrated available technologies at uh, temperatures greater than 1,000 degrees Celsius, but, you know, although some data does suggest that incineration may spread PFAS. So this is another area where we need to uh, uh, have more research and development. So to, to really answer your question, no, there, at this point, there's no real silver bullet out there. I think that's the chase that uh, most vendors and consultants are really looking at. I think the, the more appropriate thing is to have uh, well-demonstrated, documented, and uh, evaluated technologies in your toolbox so that, you know, going to different sites, you can just pull out the different technology that would be more appropriate for that specific site. Sure. Yeah, no, yeah. You know, um, the the incineration, um, you know, situation that's come about because, you know, some of the PFAS chemical uh, disposal methods that I've been tracking on, you know, it looked like incineration was like the main, you know, best option. And now that there's, there's an indication that there could be, you know, air dispersion uh, spread. Uh, once the destruction is, is happening and still, you know, there's still impacts that is, I think, making some of the uh, disposal companies have pause uh, to to recommend that. So uh, that's, that's kind of interesting um, that uh, that recent developments come up. Um, so, yeah, the um, the other the other uh, uh, question I have is, though, so, you know, based on the, the, the pilot study that you did, you know, and, and you know, you come up with this uh, uh, potential 
ozonation process that really is good. Do you foresee uh, going to a full scale scenario or like, a, you know, a pilot study going to that direction with the based on the technology? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, our, our main conclusion there of that bench scale study is that, you know, all, all treatments resulted in a significant decrease in the uh, observed PFAS concentrations. And the results suggest that PFAS reductions may be a combination of destruction and physical removal. Uh, destruction by oxidative processes may be taking place as a degradation mechanism, but it's not the dominant treatment mechanism and not necessarily due to alkaline ozonations, as uh, previous authors have suggested. Uh, PFOS was consistently reduced during the initial pretreatment step at ambient and acidic pH ranges without the addition of base, that alkaline environment, and addition of um, hydrogen peroxide, which would give us that oxidative environment. And uh, these observations suggest that the multiple treatment pathways are occurring over the duration of the experiment. So, you know, treatment under PFAS, treatment of PFAS under these conditions uh, suggests that this may be a valuable option for, for some impacted waters. But again, uh, at this point, we want to do more evaluation so that we can actually understand what's happening to the PFAS all the way through the um, all the way through the, the, the intervals and the processes. Yeah. So, so, so it sounds like most of the work you're doing is on water. Would that be true? You know, groundwater or drinking water? I mean, are you addressing any situations associated with in situ or ex situ treatment of PFAS in soil? Excellent question. And I know that our um, colleagues in Australia have dealt with this a bit in terms of trying to understand soil at some of the defense sites there. And I know they've participated in uh, soil washing studies to, you know, remove uh, PFAS from the soil, but that concentrates it into the aqueous phase and that you still have to deal with that somehow. Uh, something that we have been getting into is uh, really more of the soil stabilizations. There, there are, are many vendors who have amendments now that are really being tweaked to, you know, reduce leaching of uh, PFAS from soil. And we are, um, you know, looking to begin our studies there so that we can have uh, more solutions for different um, media other than just drinking water and, and groundwater. Oh, that's interesting. I like that uh, concept of uh, solidification of some sort to bind up the, the PFAS and soil. That's, I think that could really be a great option for, you know, some of these impacted uh, media out there, because I think the big challenge that a lot of the disposal companies are worried about is, is if they take this material and put it into their landfills, you know, they don't want it to leach because then it's, it ends up in their leachate. Which right. then they're going to have to treat, right? Right, absolutely. And th there are amendments, and some of them have been used before on other contaminants. Uh, some of them are being newly developed so that they can be specific to uh, a PFAS. The only struggle there is that, you know, while the focus, at least at the EPA level, is on PFOA and PFOS, at the state level, there are a few more PFAS that are being added. So when you're looking at, you know, total or, you know, total observed PFAS removal, you have to look at more than just a few because the challenge is that you put in a treatment system um, that only is going to take care of the couple of PFAS that we're looking at now. But in years to come, if others are going to be regulated, you know, you want to make sure that your treatment system is effectively removing, um, destroying and, um, you know, removing the PFAS from, from other uh, media. Yeah, no, no. So, I mean, you, you talk about, you know, you're kind of segueing into some regulatory uh, concerns. So the EPA, as I understand it, has not come out with any real regulatory limits at the moment 
but it does sound like several states are real close to uh, actually uh, putting regulatory, you know, drinking water limits, uh, you know, in, in, in the state. So what, what's your take on that? And, you know, where do you see the biggest uh, hotspots or, should, you know, the states that are going to really drive uh, th- this, this whole uh, industry, um, you know, over the next few years? Absolutely. I know that New Jersey, they, uh, you know, implemented their very stringent maximum contaminant level on uh, PFOA and PFOS in drinking water. Uh, Michigan also has been leading the way and have some draft values for MCLs. Uh, California has been going around and doing more of a phased approach and trying to understand the PFAS impacts um, so that they can, you know, develop more of a regulatory uh, focus there. So although it, I like to say, is more of a wild, wild west and, you know, where you're sitting in terms of what the, the PFAS regulation is going to be, the trend is towards more, more regulation at the, at the state level. And as you mentioned, you know, EPA has their health advisory level on drinking water only and only for the two PFAS. But I think there are more pressures um, from the state to, you know, develop that a bit more and have more of an understanding of, of which PFAS we want to regulate. Are we going to regulate it? as a class that that's been something that's been floated in terms of short chain PFAS versus long chain PFAS, sulfonates versus carboxylates. There's a lot of different things that are really, you know, moving at all at the same time. And I think over the next few years, we will see some of that flesh out um, as more uh, peer reviewed studies come about. So, I mean, that, 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 that makes total sense. I think it's such a new, um, you know, the emerging, you know, contaminant, not a lot's known about everything that need, you know, they need to know about it before they start to really put, you know, limits to stuff. I, I, I think that uh, we, we still have a few, few uh, year or so to go before we come up with uh, true like EPA thing uh, or rules and regulations on it. But what what in your role at GHD, you know, I know you're in the innovative technology group. I mean, are you supporting or helping advise clients with any information about, you know, this uh, emergent contaminant? I mean, do you, do you have any publications or newsletters or anything like that that you're pu- you know, putting out for clients so they can consume? And Right. Absolutely. And to your point, we, we do take a, a systematic approach towards uh all things PFAS, including treatment, um, site assessment. And like I mentioned, many vendors are developing these amendments to be more effective towards treatment. So we, we have to stay really at the cutting edge so that we can you know, provide the best available solutions for, for our clients. And we do have our PFAS uh, newsletters that go out uh, really summarizing the all things PFAS in terms of where the regulations are changing, um, where uh, new studies may be developing, what are the next hotspots, just so that we can be more proactive versus reactive for some of our uh, PFAS sites. Uh, so those newsletters are, are available. We have thought leadership um, editorials where we have various members within our emerging contaminants teams write uh, pieces on specific topics, such as uh, proper waste management, such as uh, a fate and transport, in addition to uh, effective treatment remedies. Uh, and and in, in terms of addressing, you know, some of these PFAS risks and liabilities, our team, you know, we look at this from a risk management approach so that we can evaluate surrounding sensitive receptors, including wells that would be used as drinking water wells, in addition to, you know, having treatability studies and treatment technologies 
um, that can effectively uh, take care of all PFAS and not just uh, a handful of them. So for the listeners, how would they, you know, access or get a hold of maybe one of these newsletters that you, uh, you, you just talked about? Yep, they're available on our uh, ghd.com website uh, under emerging contaminants. Alternatively, I'm always uh, available and happy to uh, you know, provide information via my email there. Absolutely. No, that's fantastic. That's good because the, the, I'm sure listeners are going to want to dig into some resources. Uh, so that'd be great. I'll probably also post up uh, on the website, uh, you know, a link to this, uh, this um, newsletter that just recently came out. So, you know, I guess, you know, we've been, we've been talking about this, you know, the podcast is, is called the environmental transformation podcast, you know, how are you transforming the way GHD approaches, approaches PFAS research? And how are you supporting the clients addressing PFAS risk and liabilities? Right. So one of my main focuses is to keep an eye on what's being done um, in industry in terms of also uh, academics. Because I think what we've learned in the past before is that many of these technologies and even some of the uh, novel testing strategies really is driven at the academic level. So what I do is, is uh, keep a focus on who's doing what and, you know, how how that would actually be uh, useful for our a program at GHD in addition to our clients. And like I mentioned before, that, that systematic approach towards PFAS treatment, uh, you know, many vendors are really developing different amendments. And in ITG, we have that ability to screen numerous amendments in parallel in order to select the best tool there in the toolbox. So, you know, the way we do it is to, you know, be able to evaluate all of these, um, all of these technologies without a bias and really looking for the, the best available uh, risk management strategy and, uh, you know, treatment technology. Well, that's great. Uh, that's great. I mean, that's good to hear, um, you know, th- those types of things you're working on and, and how you're keeping up on the industry and, and uh, you know, evaluating options. So, here, you know, one question I have is like, what type of advice would you give someone interested in getting into the environmental research field? Yeah, I, you know, I all even since I was uh, growing up and, and going through my formal education and, and going through graduate school, I always was interested in, in solving problems. So I, I what I would say is that find a problem that uh, really needs to be solved. And for, for me, you know, coming through uh, GHD and ITG it was this emerging contaminants because there's so little known about them. And I, I think that that would be uh, an area for, for more research and development and understanding, you know, what the effective strategies are in terms of treatment. Also understanding what are the, the fate and transport of, of different um, environmental contaminants, not necessarily just for PFAS, but uh, for others such as 1,4-dioxane and, um, you know, pharmaceuticals and, and personal care products, things that are, you know, coming up on the radar. I know we've all seen more about the uh, microplastics. There have been a, a few um, articles here and there on them. And just trying to understand where the, the regulations are going just so that you can get ahead of that and offer, you know, practical um, um, solutions there. Yeah, no, yeah, that's great. So so are you and GHD working with any universities to do research? Yeah, in fact, the, the paper that we just published there that we've been, been talking about uh, our academic partner, Clarkson University, was, was there. Um, we have reached out to uh, numerous uh, universities and have uh, 
uh, agreements and non-disclosure in place to evaluate uh, some of their interesting and novel technologies in terms of absorbing PFAS in different ways and also destroying them. Uh, one recent agreement that we have is to look at um, some of these sensors that are kind of being developed in academia to go out to uh, a site and actually be able to detect PFAS down to those uh, part per trillion nanogram per liter levels there. Um, so there's quite a, a few, you know, irons in the fire that, that we keep our eye on just in, in terms of trying to be ahead of it and be more proactive. Wow. So so there are some, should I say, digital technologies out there that are able to maybe instantly kind of, you know, identify concentrations of PFAS in, in water? Well, there, there's, a, there's a, a sensor there, and then we're hoping that we can, um, you know, collaborate with, with these researchers and kind of help them, you know, harness the energy of, of that particular um, technologies in terms of, uh, you know, retrofitting it and, and, and combining it with Internet of Things or IoT so that you can have that on-demand uh, uh, te- detection limit. Right now, uh, half a nanogram per liter, which is one uh, half a part per trillion, is really the, the the reporting limit for many labs now, and if you can do that in the field, that will cut down uh, significant time in terms of you know having to send that back to the lab and do those uh, extractions and actually get you that quantitation that you're looking for. I think that really would be a game changer. Oh yeah, I can imagine like the the the, the drinking water facilities would love something like that. Yes, absolutely. Right on. Wow, right, right. Well, Ryan, this has been, you know, a fantastic interview. Um, and, and what I'd like to try to usually do at the end uh, is kind of close a little bit with some topics here that there are some questions that are kind of rapid fire, so to speak. Uh, one of them would be, like, hey, what hobbies do you have outside of work? Yeah, sure. I uh, I love playing uh, baseball with my son. Uh, I enjoy working out when I can. And uh also traveling, of course, when, when it is safe to do so. Um, but just generally spending spending time with my family is a, is a big hobby of me. Fine. Yeah, that's great. I mean, being a dad's like the best job ever, really. So that's great. I'm glad you like that. Um, hey, tell us your favorite musical artist or, both, uh, or plural. <laughs> yeah, I'm a, a big fan of jazz music. There are numerous artists that I like to listen to, such as uh, Ramsey Lewis, Chuck Mangione and uh, uh, Kim. Oh, okay, okay. How about a little Spyro Gyro? You ever listen to any of those guys? No, but hey, I, I I will. I will. I'm I just all things jazz is my jam. Okay, yeah, check out Spyro Gyro. They're really good. I'm writing it down. All right. Um, one last question here is: How do people get a hold of you? Yeah, uh, best way to get a hold of me is through my uh, email. It's Ryan R Y A N dot Thomas T H O M A S at G H D dot com. Perfect. Perfect. Well, this is great, Ryan. I'll also post uh, your contact information up on, on our on my website, so that way you can uh, they can people can get a hold of you. Um, this has been a fantastic segment. Um, I'm looking forward to uh, getting it out to the listeners here shortly. And um, thanks for coming on. And I look forward to uh, catching up maybe down the road here, and uh, maybe learn some more about your uh, you know new accomplishments and new uh, studies. That'd be great. Hey. Thank you for allowing me to ha- have the time, and I appreciate it. And hopefully your, your listeners enjoy it, too. All right. Thank you, Ryan. We'll talk to you soon. All right, Sean. Bye-bye. Bye. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Ryan Thomas, for coming on to the show today. If you have questions about PFOS services GHD offers, 
please feel free to contact Dr. Thomas via email at ryan.thomas at ghd.com or you can check out their website at www.ghd.com. We'll also put a link to his contact information on my webpage. To listen to future environmental transformation podcasts, you can check us out on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other podcast networks, or from my website at www.seankgrady.com. Thanks for listening, and until next time, make a positive impact in someone's life today.